Welcome, listeners, to part one of two episodes that will feature Black explorers of history. And to share their stories, we will be joined by my good friend and mentor, J.R. Harris. J.R. is a member of the Explorers Club, an educator, and a great storyteller. On this episode, we will learn about Esteban de Dorantes, the first known black explorer. He has been referred to as the first great African man in America. We will also hear about York. He was the only African American on the Lois and Clark expedition and the first African American to have crossed North America to reach the Pacific. So sit back and enjoy part one of two enlightening episodes. The Appalachian Mountain Club invites adventurers, explorers, and outdoor leaders to share their astonishing stories. Stories that unite communities with inspiration, information, and entertainment. Elevating unheard and diverse stories because everyone is part of the outdoor community. This is the Unlikely Stories Podcast. Welcome, everyone, to the Unlikely Stories Podcast. I am your host, Derek Lugo. And I'm Carly Moray. Today, we are going to hear from the OG of backpacking. J.R. Harris has been backpacking long distances for more than 50 years in some of the most remote wilderness areas in the world, unsupported and mostly alone. J.R. is on the board of directors for the 116-year-old Explorers Club and is the chairman for the club's Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion Committee. He is also a frequent speaker at outdoor organizations such as the Appalachian Mountain Club, Sierra Club, Adirondack Mountain Club, Audubon Society, the Explorers Club, L.L. Bean, and REI. He has written numerous articles about his experiences in the outdoors as well as the book Way Out There, Adventures of a Wilderness Trekker. You ready to kick it with JR? Let's kick it. JR Harris, welcome to the Unlikely Stories podcast. Hey, how you doing? I'm good. I'm really excited about this one. Um, so what we're sharing today is uh, part one of this two-part episode that JR will speak with us about Black explorers who have played a monumental role in our outdoor history. Yeah, thank you, Derek, and I'm really happy to be here. Uh, I'm also happy to speak about Black explorers. I am a, uh, an explorer myself. I've been out there uh, more than 50 years. I'm a member of the Explorers Club. I'm sitting on the board of directors, and I chair the uh, club's Diversity, uh, Equity, and Inclusion Committee. But in reality, uh, you know, when you think about Black explorers, the list is very short. And most people don't know anything about Black explorers. And so one of the things that I want to do as a contemporary African-American explorer is simply to shine a light on some of the early Black explorers uh, who came before me and who were instrumental in the opening of this uh, country. So with that, uh, I want to first take you back to, and I'm going to be consulting here my notes here so I don't get the dates uh, wrong or anything like that. <laughs> all right, let's go all the way back to 15... 27. And this is a gentleman named Esteban de Dorantes. Now, Esteban de Dorantes uh, was actually a Moroccan 
uh, Berber, or they used to call them the Moors. Uh, and so he was a black man under the Spanish influence back then. He had a, a lot of different names, Esteban, Estebancito. Esteban de Durantes means that he was a slave of a person named Durantes, Andres Durantes. Now, Andres had a, an expedition to the New World uh, consisting of 300 people, and they were shipwrecked off the coast of uh, western coast of Florida. And only Esteban and three other people survived. And so for the next eight years, uh, Esteban and these three other uh, hapless uh, sailors are roamed uh, from western uh, coast of Florida up the Gulf Coast and into northwest Texas. And during that time, they, uh, they had a lot of, um, uh, they met a lot of indigenous people there. They learned how to live on their own out there. They learned uh, Indian languages. Uh, and when they finally got to Mexico, they brought stories of incredible riches that were to be found in the Southwest. And so the um, Mexican uh, viceroy, his name was uh, Antonio de Mendoza, decided to uh, send an expedition up there to try to tap into all the wealth that was rumored to be there. So, of course, he wanted some people to, to kind of guide him uh, who had been there before. And so he approached these four survivors. The other three people said, forget it, man, I'm not going. Uh, and only Esteban, who actually probably didn't want to go either, but he was a slave. And so uh, Mendoza goes back to uh, uh, Durantes' owner, Andres uh, uh, Durantes, and buys uh, the slave and then says, okay, you're going out there. Mm. So now the expedition starts and uh, they're going into, uh, into the Southwest, which they call Cibolia back then. And he was uh, in charge of the expedition was a priest named Marcos de Niza. And so what he did is he says to, uh, uh, to Esteban Durantes, you go first as a scout and you uh, check out all the people there and, and then come back and let us know what's happening. And he, the, the deal was that they were going to have a little cross. He says, if there's some important information, make it a small cross. If it's very important, a little bigger. And if it's really important, send back a very large cross and then we will come and follow you. So they leave. Sooner or later, uh, some people that were with him come back to the friar and they say, uh, they, and he gave a big cross. So they were really excited. So now they're going to follow Esteban to catch up to him. But when they do, uh, what they see is the people who are with Esteban running backwards, retreating. And they're saying that something really terrible happened. Uh, the Native Americans there uh, were aggressive. They attacked and Esteban was killed. Hmm. And with that, the uh, expedition basically was over. Uh, the people had to go back. And so the, the way, way it ends is that nobody is really sure uh, if in fact Esteban was killed uh, because he had experience being there. He knew the Indian languages and whatever. And let's face it, he was probably tired being a slave 
Uh, so maybe he just stayed there. Mm. So it's one mystery that uh, uh, we'll probably never know the answer to. But in the end, uh, Esteban de Dorantes was the first person of color, first black man to explore the uh, continent here. It is so incredible. I mean, my mind is having a hard time thinking back to such early time periods. I can't even think beyond like 1988. Um, (laughs) So what year did you say that Esteban first started that voyage over and ended up near Florida? Okay, I'll give you some dates here. They they started uh, in Europe, of course, they got to Florida um, and and that started in 1527. Okay, then... they were shipwrecked. By the time uh, Esteban got back to Mexico, that was 1536. So that was like eight years later, nine years later. And then uh, the expedition started to search for gold and riches um, in what they were calling the, uh, the New World. And that was, uh, those are the basic dates. Uh, they got there, um, it was ill-fated. They called it the Coronado Expedition, by the way. Uh, searching for gold. You know, that's interesting because I remember learning about the Coronado expedition, probably in elementary or middle school, but I don't know. But did they tell you there was a black guy? They didn't mention Esteban. Right. Left out out that little detail. (laughs) But it's the way you worded it, though, because you said um, it wasn't like he he volunteered. He may have been forced to do it, but... um, it's it's great to wonder if like he was he was like look i'm gonna do this but i know this area and i have an escape route like isn't that amazing to think that he he could have done something like that well you know i believe that anything would have been better than being a slave 100 100 yeah or any other century for that matter Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and since he already had eight years wandering around that area uh, in the southern United States and northwestern Mexico, uh, he knew how to survive. He knew uh, the native languages. Uh, he had just a lot of uh, a lot of experience, and I'm sure confidence in being there. Uh, and so, rather than uh, uh, lead this expedition or be a scouting expedition, it's going to possibly make other people rich, but he would still be a slave. Mm-hmm. Uh, once he's out there, I could see uh, very easily. How he might want to say, listen, uh, I'm good right here. Yeah. He had his connections. He's like, look, I'm staying with my boys. I ain't going. Yeah, go back and tell him I didn't make it. <laughs> tell, tell him something happened to me, but I'm staying with my boys. <laughs> it's awesome. I love that one. So he didn't know he was making history, obviously. Uh, yeah. The first uh, person of color to be out there. But uh, too, maybe when it's when it's not initially your choice to do something, if you're the first at doing it, it I don't know if you're thinking you want to be making history. Do you know what I mean? When, He's just when it's not something yeah. you're choosing. Yeah. When mm-hmm. you're just trying to survive. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah. Don't forget. He, you know, he, he was first on a shipwreck with 300 people and only four people survived. He was one of them. Let's take a quick break. This episode is supported by Lakey, makers of the world's best poles since 1948. Whether you're out hiking on your neighborhood trails or undertaking a thru-hike of the AT, Lakey has the perfect pole to fit your needs. I certainly rock with Lakey poles. They help me take the load off my joints and definitely prevent me from falling and headbutting a tree. They also help me conserve energy. 
so I can make it to my destination feeling fabulous. To learn more about the benefits of hiking with poles and to find a retailer near you, visit Lakey.com. That's L-E-K-I dot com. Let's get back to the show. Who's the next Black explorer that you feel like is important for us to know the name of and the story behind? Well, his name is York. It's the only name he had because York uh, was, you know, like Esteban de Durantes, was a slave. Um, Now, York was born in 1770. So we're moving up from 1577 to 1770. And uh, he was born in, uh, in Virginia. And he was a slave of the family of William Clark. And William Clark was one of the two leaders of the uh, Lewis and Clark expedition uh, in the early 1800s. And actually, York was the same age as, uh, as William Clark. Um, he was actually a slave of William Clark's father. Um, he was the same, same age as William Clark. They grew up together as boys. Um, and then when William Clark's father died, uh, William Clark uh, inherited his property and also inherited York as a slave. So uh, they, they knew each other from the time they were born and the time they, they grew up. Um, so uh, he grew up in Clark. Uh, he actually married in 1804, uh, but he, he was not really allowed to live with his wife. And when uh, the Lewis and Clark expedition set out in 1804 from St. Louis, and they, of course, were heading west to uh, explore the Louisiana Purchase that had just been uh, purchased by the U.S. government by um, President Thomas Jefferson. And uh, they were to record everything they saw and ideally to get all the way to the Pacific Ocean. So it was called a Voyage of Discovery. And it's probably the greatest uh, exploration in the, in the United States in the history of the country, because they were the first ones to get beyond the Mississippi River and get all the way to the, uh, to the Pacific coast. So on the way out, though, now, once this voyage of discovery began, uh, suddenly York is treated less as a slave and more as a, a, an expedition member. Uh, he was a very good, or he became a very good backwoodsman, for example. He knew uh, uh, how to survive out there in all this unknown uh, country. He was proficient at herbal medicine. He learned from the uh, Native Americans back there. Uh, and he also functioned as a hunter. He hunted uh, meat to supply the, uh, the expedition. And what's interesting there is that back in the early 1800s, it was actually illegal for a black man to have a gun. And yet he not only um, had a gun, but he knew how to use it. It was a good shot and he was a, a good hunter. If you uh, read the journals of the Lewis and Clark expedition, one of the interesting things uh, that you read about is, is York's uh, interaction with the Native Americans that they met. Now, you can imagine these Native Americans, they never seen a black person before. Uh, they didn't know what to think. And, uh, and it was especially relevant that some of them used to, um, when they went on a warpath, would paint themselves black. 
So to see somebody who was already black, uh, that had a, an impact on him. And there are stories about the, them trying to rub his skin to see if the color will come off, which is kind of weird because that's actually happened to me in some of my earlier expeditions uh, into the far north. So yeah, I guess they, that curiosity goes that far. Um, when, they, uh, when the Lewis and Clark expedition finally got to the Pacific coast and they had to decide where to spend the winter, uh, they took a vote as to where they should where they should do it. And, and York actually had a vote in that uh, decision, which is again, uh, unlikely for a, uh, for a slave. And when the uh, expedition finally returned several years later, uh, all the members of that expedition got uh, paid, they got land from the government, they, they, they did a really good job, uh, but York, never got anything because he was considered the property of William Clark. Uh, and so despite all the contributions that he made to the expedition, um, he was given nothing. Um, there's, a, uh, uh, there's a story that, that William Clark promised York that he would be free when he came back. Uh, but when, he, uh, when the expedition returned, um, William Clark kept uh, York in slavery and would not let him go. And apparently there was some uh, real friction there uh, between the two. There are, um, there are notes between William Clark and his brother complaining about York and, uh, and threatening to have York sold to a, a much more severe master uh, and so forth. And so in, in his later years, there's, not much known about what happened to him. Some people say that he got married. Some people say that he uh, was finally given his freedom. Uh, there were uh, rumors back in the day that there was a black man living among the Indians. Uh, and it's thought that maybe it was York who went back out there and did it again. But uh, at the end of the day, York was the first uh, African-American to go all the way to the Pacific Ocean as part of the Lewis and Clark expedition. So really it's York, Lewis and Clark, but we grew up hearing just Lewis and Clark. Right, in the voyage of discovery. So there you have it again. It's, you know, it's, it's, it's about shining a light on, on people who were out there, people who did it, but never got any, any recognition for it. And mm -hmm. on the true, the true story, the real story, the whole version. The whole version, yes. Yeah, it has it has to be hard uh, for York or it had to have been hard for York where he uh, he was a slave. And then all of a sudden he has a, a, a taste of freedom where he feels, I don't maybe like an equal where he's doing the same. He's an explorer uh, and then coming back and what everything that you gain from from that adventure is totally lost. So. In a way, it's worse when you get that taste of freedom. You like, and you you're promised all these things, and you don't get it. And I, for me, I would like to think that he somehow did find freedom because he had the taste. And he's there's no way you can revert back to, especially if you know you have this skill set and you help do this amazing thing to go back to slavery. I I would hope that he found a way to get out of that situation and, and get married and and. Well, you know, and it's also similar to uh, 
to African-Americans who served in the military back in the day, uh, the Buffalo soldiers and mm-hmm. even during World mm-hmm. War One, while they're at war, they're equal, you know, because mm-hmm. every life is a life. But then when they come back home, they have to go back to that same uh, uh, subjugation, Jim Crow, whatever that they were suffering before they left. So, yeah, I like to think that uh, that it ended up well for York uh, because he there's no question from reading the Lewis and Clark journals that he made a contribution, uh, that he pulled his weight uh, and, and actually deserved a better fate than he got. Mm-hmm. And why don't we know his entire name? Why, why is that not in history? Well, you know, not only do we not know his entire name, if that was that, maybe that was his entire name. Uh, I mean, typically a, a slave would take the name of the last name of the owner uh, so maybe York Clark, he deserved better, you know, and uh, uh, we don't even know really what he looked like. I mean, I, you'll see some photos uh, of him mm-hmm. and there are a couple of statues of the Lewis and Clark expedition that include York, uh, Sacagawea, the uh, Indian uh, Native American woman who was a guide for them for a while. Oh, yeah, uh, I know all about her. So you even know about her. Uh, and uh, so there are statues, a couple of them, and there's a bust of him, but nobody knows if that really uh, looks like him. So, uh, you know, because he was a slave in the early 1800s, uh, there are, you know, there are incomplete records. Uh, there's no real, um, no real image or likeness to say what he actually looked like. And of course, there's nothing that documents his, uh, his later life. How do we know about him? Is it through the records uh, of his slave owners? And what he did. Uh, most or... of most okay. of what we know is a, is a, is because the members of the voyage of exploration, the Lewis and Clark expedition, they all wrote journals, mm-hmm. and uh, the journals are uh, extremely detailed because they had to record everything they saw, everything they learned, everything they heard, um, and so from those journals, they you know York has mentioned uh, uh, quite a bit. And that's how we know uh, how proficient he was uh, as an explorer. And um, there were, as I mentioned, there were letters when they finally came back between Clark and his brother about York. But it's all speculation. They say that he was married earlier, as I mentioned. Uh, but his, uh, his wife was owned by a different family. And so they couldn't be together. But it's, it's really not, uh, everything is not verified as far as I understand. But what we know is that he that he did that expedition, went all the way out there and came all the way back and made a a significant contribution to it. You mentioned that people would rub his skin to see if his color was really his natural color and that people have done that to you before. Yeah. Now, if you want to go back uh, to some of my earlier trips that we're talking now, 40 45 years ago, when I would go up to uh, northern Alaska, and, uh, and there were still people living there in some of these uh, Eskimo or Inuit uh, communities who had never seen a black person before. And when was this? Uh, starting in the 1980s, mm-hmm. early to mid 80s, you know, and then or they had in some places they had uh, a, a newly installed satellite dish. So they could pull in, you know, a uh, uh, video of different kinds. So they had seen, you know, African-American, but never seen one in person. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, it was 
it was a, uh, uh, a different experience. You know, when I first started going up there, they'd say, oh, we never saw a black person before. And then now when I go up there, they say, well, we seem like people like on TV, but we never seen one in person before. You know, so. so someone said that to me uh, when I was through hiking the Appalachian Trail and I couldn't I couldn't believe it. So and we're talking 2012. On the App Trail, they said it. Yep. Someone in the South said that to me and also a couple times on the trail. Uh, someone they wanted to touch my hair because they never seen hair like mine. And well, to it, see hair like yours, they just can come to Asheville. Yeah, for the dreads. Right, but <laughs> there was one time when this guy just like, "Oh, you have nice hair," and just started touching my hair, and I was like, "Okay, mm. yeah, they get in your personal space, don't they?" Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, they mm-hmm. Over and and I'm like, wait a minute. Yeah. Yes. I, just, Without I saw a guy who, uh, a man who, uh, way up in the far north, and he knew about Magic Johnson, and he says, "What's it? What's he like?" And I said, "Well, I don't know him." And he said, well, you're black, aren't you? <laughs> I said, yeah, well, I don't know all the black people. I, I tell people I sense, I can sense when another black person is close by. So I don't sense anyone on the trail here that's black. <laughs> <So> <laughs> they believe all the myths. <laughs> okay, so that was um, part one of this amazing episode. We are going to uh, do two more explorers in part two. See you then. We are not gearheads, but we're going to talk about gear and we're going to talk about packs because everyone who goes backpacking needs a pack of some sort. And everyone has a really crazy story of when they first started backpacking of what type of pack they had. And I know me, I had a four and a half pound pack, Derek, like not counting food, empty, empty. Just the pack itself weighed four and a half pounds. I know, and the hip belt, like now, I don't even usually use a hip belt, and if I do, it's a pretty flimsy, simple thing. This hip belt was massive. It ate my midsection. The pockets were insane. I don't even know what I would have put in them. It just was so much oomph behind it that I didn't really need. That you didn't need, okay. No, and when I look back at pictures, I I am so embarrassed. Even telling the story. I need to see those pictures. (laughs) I am so embarrassed and you will never see them. But what's your pack story when you started? <laughs> well, um, <clears throat> I I knew I needed to get a backpack for my through hike. So I went to an outfitter and I just, and I knew that the backpack needed to fit me. Because I'm pretty lean uh, on the smaller side. So I needed a backpack that wasn't made for like, a huge man. So I knew I didn't need the large one. So I ended up picking one that was pretty looking. <laughs> it was the Osprey one, but it was big. I took it home, put some stuff in it. It was way too big for me. Um, I liked the look of it and I knew if I was a bigger person, it would have been perfect. So I decided to, to exchange it for a granite gear, the one that I ended up through hiking with. And that one was lean, skinny. It was, it. I could fit enough in there. You could take the top off. Um, and after I through hiked, I looked at it closely and it was actually a woman's backpack, woman's medium, (laughs) (laughs) but I was like, it was a perfect size. Like it fit nicely. Yeah. If it fits you. Yeah. It was trim. So yeah, I, I, I used the granite gear and last year I used it for the first time. I had it for like nine years and last year it was just starting to like rip a little bit. It lasted a long time and granite gear was nice enough to send me a new one. Uh, so they sent me the Crown 260, which looks like 
the one I through hiked with, but it's smaller and I'm really excited about it. So the granite gear for me works from the jump. So I'm not switching to like, cause I see a lot of backpacks that are huge. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I know with this, my backpack experience, I'm gonna I'm stick with what I know. Stick with what you know. And you already found what works for you. And you know, unlike shoe companies out there, it sounds like granite gear pack, the one that you like is just consistently working for you. And, you know, with shoe companies, like you get your shoe, it works and they change it completely. And it's like, ah, why would you do shoe. that? Yeah. No. Yeah, exactly. I actually have never tried a granny gear, right? They're called granny granite, gear. granite gear. Granite gear. Right. Yeah. <laughs> not granny gear. Not a granny gear. <laughs> I would not even be bragging about that. I'm using a granny gear. They come in wallpaper <laughs> colors. <laughs> so I actually have never tried one now, but it's. Good to hear from you that that's your pick, and I think I trust your judgment. Yeah, I know some things. <laughs> Thanks, everyone, for listening to this week's gear segment. Let's end the show with a brief word from the Appalachian Mountain Club. For you listeners out there, you've probably hiked along a trail that the Appalachian Mountain Club has built or maintains. The Appalachian Mountain Club maintains more than 1,800 miles of trail from the northeast to Mid-Atlantic. Approximately 275 of those miles are on the Appalachian Trail. Here with us is Appalachian Mountain Club's White Mountain Trail Supervisor, Matt Moore. Welcome, Matt. Thanks, Derek. Good to be here. The AMC's White Mountain Trail crew is the oldest paid trail crew in the United States. Uh, The first season that our trail crew worked on trails here in the Whites was in 1918. So we're celebrating our 103rd season. Um, I am working in conjunction with AMC volunteers to help tackle maintenance issues um, and severe erosion problems, other challenges that our trails face. The AMC, one of the most remarkable things about our trail crew is the continuation of some of these old forgotten skills. We find and restore and maintain antique axes. It's the historic way of of doing work here on the forest. And in wilderness areas, we can't use chainsaws. So axes are a really appropriate tool for that and also for hard to access areas. And our trail crews um, do project work all over the White Mountains. We were working on Kearsage Mountain near North Conway, like a very popular hike near North Conway. Um, We're going to work on the Iron Mountain Trail in Jackson. These projects can be between three and 10 weeks. Uh, We like the longer projects better. Longer projects allow us to really focus on a section of trail um, and bring it up to standard. But we'll work, you know, on projects for as little as one or two weeks. And we're bouncing all over the region. It's a lot of logistics. Many of the trails out here are well over 100 years old and have alignments that, that I believe weren't meant to hand, like the people who built these trails never could have anticipated the amount of use that we see today. If you think about 100, 150 years ago, um, how hard it must have been to get up here from Boston or from anywhere compared to now, um, we are just seeing such an incredible amount of use on trails that weren't designed for it. So these old trails do have a lot of historic value. Mm-hmm. So these historic trails are both you know, a beautiful asset for the context of the AMC's involvement in the White Mountains, but they're also a real management challenge for us going forward. What can hikers do to keep trails strong and resilient? 
you know, the leave no trace principle, walk mm-hmm. on durable surfaces. I think the single best thing that a hiker can do is in the shoulder seasons when, you know, when ski season is over, people are eager to get on the trails. Maybe there's no snow in your backyard, wherever your backyard may be. Come up to the whites and you'll find what we call the monorail. When the snow on the trail has been compacted, it is much less easy to melt. Mm-hmm. And so you have this compacted strip of ice in an otherwise melted out forest. We call it the monorail. The thing that hikers can do is actually hike on that icy strip. It's counterintuitive, but this is about preparation. You know, micro spikes are often adequate. Sometimes maybe crampons are the solution. But if you're in the shoulder season in March or April when you're up here in the White Mountains and there's ice and snow in the middle of the trail, don't tromp around through the woods to find better footing because that's really destructive. So I think that's one tip. And the other tip is to, is to volunteer, is to, you know, the AMC has so many great, robust volunteer communities and committees. Um, they are broken up by region often. And it's really a dizzying amount. Wherever you live, wherever you like to hike, we probably have volunteer opportunities for you. And so I would say, one, walk on durable surfaces. Two, volunteer for trails. The Unlikely Stories podcast is produced by the Appalachian Mountain Club. Production design, editing, and show segments are produced by Kelly Welch and me, Derek Lugo. With sound design by Adam Watkins. The Unlikely Stories podcast episodes are written by Derek Lugo with writing assistance from Carly Murray. For more Unlikely Stories, follow us on Instagram at Unlikely Stories Podcast. And hey, if you are digging what you hear, take a moment to subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. This helps us bring the pod to more people.